Hey, we're going to get started. Let me, let me share a couple things with you first that I, I want us to be thinking about. Uh, one, since, something to celebrate together. Uh, we received a card from Stormgrove School. Uh, we have a fund whenever, if you do use the online giving, uh, one of the, at the drop-down tab, you can give, you know, like a tithe, or you can give to different projects, different things, benevolence and other things. And we have one for Stormgrove. You can give to the fund for Stormgrove. And so uh, here we have a, a, a card from them that it says, we cannot thank you enough for all you have contributed to our students. For many of these students, they would have not, they would have gone without uh, had it not been for your generous support. The donations you gave Stormgrove allowed us to buy food, toiletries, clothes, shoes, backpacks, and school supplies. In addition to these items, the students uh, learned how compassionate and caring others can be, a, li a life lesson some uh, struggle with. You are your you and your congregation are appreciated so much. So praise God for that. Amen. Isn't it wonderful to make an impact in, in, in the lives of young people and then to hear how that's affecting them, how it's impacting them. I, I love that. So uh, I think Deb, Deb's going to post that on our Facebook page or on our website. I'm not sure where, but it'll be posted so the rest of our members can see that. But uh, we continually want to be a blessing to, to that school. We're thankful to the Lord for having the opportunity to meet there. It's a beautiful facility. Um, that school was built, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago. Uh, I, I could be way off, but I think it's in the ballpark of 12 years. And it's probably the nicest looking facility in the whole county. And uh, we're blessed to be able to, to use it. So that's good stuff. I also want us to pray tonight a couple requests that come to mind. Well, several, but... Uh, we still have families that struggle with COVID, uh, no concerns, they're not coming to church. You know, most people now understand the protocol with COVID. When you show symptoms, you don't, you don't hang out with people, you stay home. And you know that you've gotta go that 10 day period and make sure there's no symptoms left and all the things. And so our people are following that. But we do have some folks who are facing that. It was not from church. It was just family that they connected with or uh, somehow, you know, whatever. Uh, but let's keep them in prayer. It's, nonetheless, it's, it's difficult. Uh, one of our members lost her stepdad to COVID uh, 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 Monday or yesterday, yesterday. And let, let's keep her in prayer and her family and her mother. Uh, that's, that's a big deal. I also want us to keep uh, Bill McClellan, one of our elders, you know, uh, Burley Bill, uh, big old Bill, and he, what a great guy he is. And he's in the Melbourne Heart uh, Center, and uh, Bill is just trying to recover from some things that he's been facing, and he's been in and out of the hospital a couple times now over the last three weeks. And we just need to keep Bill in prayer. And uh, his desire is to get well and come and join us I, I knew it was pretty serious when Bill wasn't able to join us for Baptism Sunday. Uh, that was a, that's a real treat for him. And so let's continue to lift him up in prayer. And Jackie, his wife, she also uh, just needs prayer because they're going through so much. I, I was prompted when I thought about some of the requests and some of the needs that we've been ministering to this week. It's been a very intensive uh, ministry time helping people. And 
I went back in Facebook at old posts that I had made, and about a year ago I had posted something about how God uses stress, God uses struggles and trials, and um, I, if you get a chance, take a look at it. And if you know someone who right now is struggling and they're really heavy-hearted and they, they're becoming downcast, please let them read that. Please point them to it. Uh, maybe it'll help someone. That's the reason we put it on there. And uh, so let's go ahead and pray if we can and lift up these requests. And there's so many more. Marshall Pennell, another elder, his father is in the hospital. And uh, his father's a minister, uh, a retired minister, and he's struggling. And so Marshall is not able to be with him. Marshall right now is, what, where is he right now, Scott? Is it Arizona? He's in Arizona, a big uh, fundraising event for a ministry, an or, a Christian organization. And that's what he does. He helps them with those things. And so he's away from his father right now, and that's really hard on him. So let's keep Marshall in prayer, but let's lift up his father, Ken. Okay, let's, let's keep him in prayer. Father, we come before you tonight. There's more needs than we even know about in the life, just in our church alone, much less in this community. And we lift those who are struggling, both in the church and outside the church, we lift those who are struggling because of COVID, those who either have it or they have a loved one that has it, and the, all the ramifications of what that means. And uh, it, it, it just impacts people in so many ways, and in their employment, it impacts their family, it impacts their friends. And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, allow people to think of you, to remember you, to focus on you as they face this insidious uh, disease. And uh, Lord, we also, we also want to uh, lift up these requests of people who are struggling in other ways, with death, with loss, some who are struggling with physical uh, issues, sickness, and we just lift them to you, Lord. We, we pray that you, the God of all comfort, the scripture says in Corinthians, and that you will comfort, we comfort others with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So Lord, when we pray, put legs on these prayers, that we would be the very ones who would bring the love of Jesus, the, the love of Christ in action to these who are hurting, these who are struggling, that we would write the cards and the notes and make the phone calls, and we would be an encouragement. We would take the meal and visit them, or at least drop the meal off for them if it's COVID. I pray, Lord, that you would just allow us to be mindful that even in down times, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to come alongside someone and minister to them and help them. And how much you use these times to grab the hearts of people and turn them back to you. And so, Lord, just do your work and may we participate with you. May we join you in kingdom work. And we thank you for tonight for the study. We want to open the scripture with a heart towards the, the Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is saying to us tonight. And we thank you that your word is the guidance that we need. It's the nourishment that we feed on each day. It's the hope that we find living in this fallen world. We give you all the praise for it. Amen. 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 Well, we, you should be with me here at 1 Samuel chapter 18. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started here uh, looking at chapter 18. Last, last chapter we saw David, young David, who goes out and defeats Goliath. 
we, he did what the army of the Lord was fearful to do, would not do. He did what King Saul himself, who was probably the only one that should have gone out against Goliath. Goliath was a man that stood somewhere in the ballpark of nine feet tall. And we already know from Scripture that when Saul was chosen as king, he was head and shoulders among all those in Israel. So he was the tallest of all those in Israel. He was at the battlefield. He heard every day Goliath walk out on the, into the valley and yell to the Israelites and defy. He said, I defy your God. I defy him. And send somebody out here. And of course, when David showed up, he said, you think, what, do you, what do you think I am that you'd send a boy out here to do a man's work? And, uh, and he really tried to threaten David with his words. And of course, David didn't go for it. He, David had his focus fully on God. He did not go out there thinking he could defeat Goliath. He went out there knowing that when someone stands up against the one true living God, that person is going to pay for it. And David went out in obedience to God, stood faithful, and said, Today God's going to hand you over to me. You think I'm going to die? He's going to hand you over to me. And of course, we know what happened. He took out Goliath with one stone, and it wasn't that he knocked Goliath out, as some scholars would say, and then he had time to go up and kill him before Goliath came to. No, the Bible says that the stone was embedded in Goliath's head. So God just supernaturally did his work through David, and David was able to take down Goliath. And so now we pick up at chapter 18. By the way, in chapter 17, the end of the chapter, we know that Saul heard of this. Saul was, the men were shouting, the rally cry was going out, and, and they told him what, what David had done, that he had defeated Goliath, and Saul said, I want the boy to come here. I, I want to talk to him. And they had a conversation. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So let's break that down, those four verses. First of all, David had just defeated Goliath, and he's summoned to go before the king. And just imagine, he walks into the king's chamber, and he is holding by the hair Goliath's head as he comes in. Okay, now that's a statement right there. And we read where, we're going to read where... Saul did not let him return home. In other words, never again will you be a shepherd boy. Saul would not let him go. I guess if a guy, a boy comes in having defeated a nine-foot-tall giant that the whole army of Israel and the king were afraid to take on, and he comes walking in holding the head, uh, you wouldn't let him go home either. Amen? I mean, you're talking about that's, that's the power of God at work. And so they had this conversation and because of that, because David took out Goliath, because the king himself wanted David in his court to talk with him, fame spread quickly across Israel about David. He performed a remarkably heroic deed, which was initially welcomed by 
King Saul, the leadership of, of, of God's people. But the reason behind the recognition was because Saul uh, knew that by spending time with the one who took out Goliath, it would make him look good. I, I would love to say to you that Saul's heart was right in everything he, he did with David. Uh, you're going to see how wrong he is, but even right now when it looks like he's doing right, even now he is only thinking of himself. Saul always focused or functioned out of a political process. What will it mean to me? And there are people today in this world, unfortunately, uh, that's, that's how they live. They filter everything through the idea, what will that mean to me? Now, look, that's human nature, so we shouldn't look down on people. The reality is you've done it too, okay? People who use a political process, those who use that political process at times, they're sitting in your chair tonight. You've done that. I've done that. And by the way, the word political is not a dirty word. Don't let what the world today has done with the word political, what they've done with that process, they've... They have, they have uh, inverted it. They've perverted it. But political is not a bad thing. It can be a very good thing. Um, when a church is led of God to purchase land and build a facility or to purchase a facility, a pastor or a leadership team will go before the people and they'll lay out why. We should do this. That is a political process. You are trying to help people understand why we all need to get together on this and make it happen. That's not a dirty thing. Where politics becomes bad is when it's for, the, it's for manipulative purposes, not for godly motivational purposes. Uh, in church, in Christian life, in business, Christian business, you, the, the, the idea of a business is to sell products to people. And so you, you position your product, you communicate your product in such a way that people will be more likely to purchase it. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's, you're, you're trying to motivate people in a positive way. Now, lying to them, bait and switch and all these tactics, that's a whole that's that's manipulative. That's different. So don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay? It can be used for the positive, for the good, for the kingdom of God. Jesus at times spoke politically. The disciples spoke Paul in addressing churches at times spoke politically. Not because he was thinking of himself and how they could help him. He was trying to get them to see God's work. We need to support the churches back in Jerusalem, or the church in Jerusalem. People are, are suffering. They don't even have food. And so he went around the churches trying to raise support. That's a good thing. That's a good political process. Make sense? So just don't, don't, don't think that it's always wrong. But I can promise you that what Saul's doing is wrong. And that's going to play out here. You're going to see it. It's going to flesh out here in just a moment, okay? Okay. Uh, Saul wasn't the only one who heard David give an extended explanation of his heart and his faith in the living, in what God can do when you trust God. I and mean, that's what 
You know that's what David was saying to Saul when Saul said, my goodness, how did you, a boy, take out the, the giant? And David immediately turned it to the Lord. You know that because every other time that, that the subject comes up, David turns it to the Lord. So he was probably instructing the king, counseling the king on the importance of trusting God in, in all your battles. Well, he wasn't, you know, Saul was not the only one that heard that. Jonathan, Saul's son, heard that. He was in the courtroom too. And so it was moving his heart as he heard David share. Here's a man after God's own heart. And, and Jonathan, Saul's son, was completely different than his own dad. So the relationship that developed between Saul's son Jonathan and David was much different than Saul's relationship to David. Saul made decisions regarding David for his own personal reasons. For him to be more popular, for him to look good in front of the people, blah, blah, blah. Jonathan, as you see here, we're going to unfold it in the text, his purposes towards David are for God's purpose, not his own. And I love that. I love that. Jonathan uh, listened, and that's when he discovered that David had the same heart. Otherwise, they would never have developed such a close brotherly bond. So the relationship that developed between Saul's son, Jonathan, and David was much different than that of King Saul. Jonathan and David had some, some, some things in common that are worth mentioning. I want to speak to you about this. They were both raised under fathers who diminished them, who, who saw them as a, a means to an end. For David, Jesse, his father, when Samuel came, the prophet, and said, hey, from your house today, I'm going to anoint a king. I need you to bring your sons. He didn't even think about bringing David up. He left David in the field to watch the sheep. He brought the other seven sons up. So he, David was diminished in his eyes. King Saul made a terrible decree as they were in the midst of a battle that he didn't really start. He just wanted to act like he was going to finish it and make it, make it look good, and then he would get the praise for it. And he made a decree that nobody should eat food until the, the evening after the enemy has been completely routed. Well, Jonathan is the reason why the battle began to, in the first place. By himself and his own servant, he went up against a, a, a garrison of Philistines, and then the battle started, and it was Jonathan walking by faith. Looked a lot like David, by the way. He's following God, doing God's work, and didn't know there was a decree that his father gave that day. He's out chasing the enemy and sl slaying them, and he finds some honey on the ground. He picks up, scoops it with his sword, and licks it, takes a, takes a bite. And one of the guys said, oh, whoa, you can't do that. The king gave a decree. Well, when they told Saul about that, what did Saul do? Well, he's got to die. Well, what man in his right mind is going to take his son's life for his own reputation? I gave a decree, I got to... Are you kidding? And it didn't happen. You know why? Because the people knew what Saul was, had done was wrong. And they stood up for Jonathan, and Jonathan lived. So their fathers both diminished them. Their fathers only saw them as a means to the end. Uh, but it's more than that. It's more than that. Uh, both were bold men. They were both courageous, Jonathan and David. Both were men who had great faith in God, what God could do. You never hear them talking about what they can do. 
And when the battles were won, they didn't go back to the camp and praise themselves. No self-grandizement at all. They simply went out because the Lord compelled them, and they did the Lord's work. Both men were men of action. But most of all, what they had in common was they were both in a very real relationship with God. These men had a relationship with God. Now, at the same time that Jonathan and David uh, had much in common, there were also some unique differences between them. Jonathan was the firstborn of a king. That makes him, uh, that makes him special. That makes him uh, the crown prince. I mean, he's going to be the next king. That's what he would have thought, and that's what the people thought. Now, his father, who didn't tell him the truth, knew from the prophet Samuel that God said, you will not continue on. Your family line will not continue uh, in the monarchy. I found somebody completely different. But Jonathan didn't know that, and, and the people didn't know that. So they're just following along, trying to... And, and he's the next guy. He's the heir apparent. And David was the lastborn of a farmer. So Jonathan was the firstborn of a king. David's the lastborn of a peasant. Okay? He couldn't come from further apart, you know, in terms of the world. This made Jonathan more than a prince. It made everyone's expect, expectation of Jonathan... Uh, very, very uh, specific that he'll be the king. But with David, they didn't know anything about David until he showed up and took out Goliath. Then all of a sudden they saw just how special he is. And when it says, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house, that means David would never again work with sheep in a flock. But don't think for a second that the shepherd heart left David that day. God would use him as a shepherd with a different kind of flock, people. And that's the heart of God. God is a, he's the father of his children. Jesus came. He said, I am the what? Good shepherd. And that whole picture, that analogy of a shepherd to sheep, I'm telling you, if you have never done this, here's a great homework assignment. If you're in business, if you're a leader in any ministry or any organization, if you are just a parishioner in a church, you're just a member of Vero Bible Fellowship, I don't care what lot of life you're in, you need to read, go and do your own study on the relationship between a shepherd and sheep. I'm talking about the animals. I'm talking about a true modern-day shepherd. The greatest shepherds uh, in the world today come from Australia. That's where most sheep are bred in Australia, more, more, more in Australia than anywhere else. There are some manuals. One, I cannot think of it. There's a gentleman who was a shepherd, and he wrote a manual on shepherding that's like that thick. It's like the encyclopedia. It's like the Bible on shepherding sheep. And the correlations between the actual shepherd and their animal is astounding. It will get, make the hair on your, on your arms stand up when you realize that God was not just arbitrarily throwing out an analogy using shepherd and sheep. We really are like sheep. And Jesus really is the good shepherd. And long before Jesus came incarnate, there was a man that walked this earth 
that had a heart after God, that was a true shepherd after the heart of God. And Jesus is called what? One of the titles. The son of who? David. The son of David. He and David both had that in common. They were shepherds in their heart. And so do your own study. I'm telling you, it'll change how you lead people. It'll change how you see yourself as a sheep in the flock of God. It will, it's just powerful. It's beautiful. When, we, when I tell you that our elders take seriously the responsibility to be shepherds over this flock, we have read a book on this. We have had long discussion about it. We meet every month. Uh, I, I got a call from Tom. Tom and Joanne, uh, what was their last name? The missionaries that came preached on Sunday morning. My goodness, I'm having a mental block. Anyway, Doyle, Doyle. Tom and Joanne Doyle. Uh, had a wonderful lunch with them afterwards uh, and, and with Kurt uh, Dillinger as well, the man who spoke Sunday night. But, uh, but Tom called me later, it was a, last week, he just called me and he said, Greg, I cannot tell you how many churches, how many pastors I've spoken to since being with you guys in Vero Beach. You guys have a special church. That's what he said. And he said, I have told them about your elders. I know of nowhere where elders are meeting once a month for no other purpose than to pray for the flock. That is shepherding. To feed and protect the, sh the sheep. And in the scripture, Paul lays it out, Jesus affirms it. The greatest way that we can possibly feed and protect God's sheep is to teach them the Word of God so that they can go into this world and be protected by the Word. That's how they're fed. That's how they're protected. That's the greatest thing. But then we also care for them. We need to care for them. And so I know I'm, I'm just kind of laboring here, but I, I, we might not get through the whole chapter. That's okay. You need to know that that is a high value at Vero Bible Fellowship. You take that very serious and uh, very thankful for the privilege of learning what a true shepherd is, what a true sheep of God is, and the relationship that they're to have. I'm thankful to God for that. Now, verse 3, uh, it says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. I just want to go back to that. Two men, each on track for the same throne. Think about that. Jonathan sat for the throne. God has already told David through Samuel the prophet, you will sit on the throne. And yet, these two men are, are deep brothers in God. They're not fighting. They're not jealous. I'm not sure that they both, are, that Jonathan realizes but I think he does. I think, he, I think when he heard David speak to his father in the chamber, I think it hit him. I think the Lord inspired him and gave him insight, and he realized this is the king. This is the future king. And I'll show you in a second why. 
I think ambition, I'll just tell you, one of the things that I think robs so many in the body of Christ of deeper, meaningful relationship is we compete with one another. We do. We just do. We, we, let's back off of the word competition for a second. Let's just use the word compare. We compare ourselves to other people in the church. Let me tell you why comparing is a terrible, unbiblical way to conduct your understanding. Because whenever you compare yourself to someone else, one of two things is going to be true. You're going to find that in whatever filter you're using, whatever subject you're discussing, that you're comparing yourself to them, you're going to find there are people on that subject, on that point of focus, that are better than you and others that are less than you. If they're better than you, envy and jealousy. If they're less than you, pride and arrogance. Those are the products, those are the byproducts of comparing. Never will comparing fare well in your spirit. Never will it line up with the Word of God. To compare is the worst thing you can do. You should appreciate what God is doing in them and know that God is also doing something in you. We're not supposed to look the same. We're not supposed to talk the same. We're not cookie-cutter Christians. I know that right now the push in the liberal world is everybody has the same, does the same, looks the same. doesn't matter if you're male or female. In fact, just choose whatever you want. All this nonsense. And the reality is God made us unique. God gave you specific personality, specific uh, disposition. He gave you a specific mind. Nobody, no two Christians, no two people are alike, ever. There's no two people on the earth today that have the exact same fingerprint. That is God's design. We should celebrate that, not compare ourselves to other people. It only tears apart. These two men, boy, what a great lesson. What a great word for us to hear tonight, to see that these men, who literally both are are looking at the throne, and yet there's not an ounce of envy, not an ounce of jealousy, not an ounce of ambition. That word ambition, I see people use it in the Christian community, and others use it so much. Oh, he's so ambitious. I'm not saying that the word is an evil word, it's a bad word. It can, it can be a good word. But here's the problem. A lot of Christians today have taken the word ambition and they put something on the front end of it. They won't say this, but this is what they're doing. It's called self-ambition. At the beginning of a new year, man, I'm going to be ambitious. This is what I'm going to do. Who cares what you want to do? It's what God wants you to do. It's not selfish ambition. It's have ambition for what God wants. Fulfill God's purpose. This is what we should do, but we don't. We don't. So I think ambition is overrated. I know that's the big cultural tug at the beginning of the new year, but I'm not so sure it lines up with God's plans for our lives. Thomas Brooks, listen to this, a Puritan. Thomas Brooks, write the name down, B-R-O-O-K-S. Sometimes you think it might be E-S. It's not. Uh, Thomas Brooks, a Puritan. Here's what he said about ambition. So this was written many years ago. 
Sometimes we need to go back to discover real truth. Because in this world today, man, truth is nothing but relative. Back then it was absolute. And it still is in the Bible. And here's what he said, quote, Ambition is a gilded misery, a secret poison. Ambition is a hidden plague, the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the parent of envy, the original vice of the angels, and Adam and Eve. He goes on, Ambition is the destroyer of virtue, the blinder of hearts. Ambition turns medicine into malady and remedy into disease. High seats are never but uneasy, and crowns are always stuffed with thorns. Wow. We've all experienced highly ambitious people. When you meet somebody who's highly ambitious, probably there's a little bit of self-promotion going on. Maybe you're one of those people. You know, the, the modern day, these life coaches, that's a funny, I just think that's hilarious, a life coach. Go to a life coach and see how much they'll point you back to the truth of God's Word. So what do they really know about life? Ridiculous. But these guys are, and gals are so full of ambition, they want you, you just got to dream a bigger dream, you got to go out and achieve, you got to do, you gotta... <laughs> all over you. What I've come to know is that if you're not careful, blind ambition can carry you so far from Christ and His cause. People get lost in their own ambitions. Pastors who start out with a hungry heart for God and seeing souls won and seeing believers discipled and they end up doing all kinds of weird stuff. Walking away from the ministry. They're serving in the world, doing things, you know, selling cars and, you know, putting clay pots in a kiln and just anything and everything, selling product. They move away from the calling. Why? Ambition. We need to be careful that we never lose our heart for God and be ambitious for Him, first and foremost. Now, if you have other things that God puts in your heart to do, that you can benefit from, okay, great. But don't ever let it crowd out your ambition for God. That's the key. Jeremiah 45.5 says, And do you seek great things for yourself? He's asking a question. The prophet of God is speaking through, uh, speaking for God, and he says, Do you seek great things for yourself? And then he gives the answer. It's a rhetorical question. Here's what he says. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. How come nobody ever quotes, no life coach ever quotes that? How come we've never heard that verse? When Paul ambitiously focused on planting churches and winning souls, he centered his life on pleasing the Lord at the expense of self. And nobody suffered more persecution than Paul other than Jesus Christ. Jonathan gave his robe to David. This is just powerful to me. Jonathan gave his robe to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. What was Jonathan saying? 
Why would he give David these personal belongings that a crown prince possesses? He's saying, you're the guy, not me. You are the Lord's anointed for this matter. Jonathan surrendered to God. He wanted God to win more than he personally wanted to win. That's what he heard from David's mouth as David was speaking to King Saul. And it just, it just melded them together as brothers. David couldn't receive Saul's armor when he was facing Goliath, but David was willing to receive Jonathan's armor. Not only because they were similar in size, but because he knew that the Lord was doing this. David otherwise would never have received it. He wasn't trying to make himself special or important, but he wanted to be whatever God wanted him to be. We should celebrate David. Amen? Not be jealous of David. Celebrate David. Now, sadly, some liberal theologians read in the relationship between David and Jonathan a homosexual relationship. There's nothing in the text, either before, here, or after, that ever suggests any kind of an immoral relationship. Nothing at all. But that's how the world works. If you're in sin, the last thing you want is truth, light. You're in sin. You're in darkness. So you have to take what's in the light and shade it. You've got to make it look dark so you can feel better about you. And that's what we see happening there. Don't, don't buy that bunk. Don't believe it. It's not of the Lord. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful whenever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and all, also in the sight of Saul's servant. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. So Saul uh, set David over the men of war, and Saul is getting praise as a great king. And in raising up a David and giving David power to go out and represent, that's a good move by Saul. So for him to be praised by the people, there's nothing wrong with that. They see a king doing what he ought to do. But it's short-lived, folks. He made a, a young man who's probably in his 20s, he made him a general in the army of Israel. Think about that. That's a fast track there now. But again, any other man would have been prideful and arrogant in, in getting that kind of a promotion, not David. Again, David could care less. David would be, would be just as happy to be tending the flocks. And so this is God raising David up and David knows how to handle it. David quickly became popular both among the people and among the leaders of Israel, including Saul's own servants. This was not because David was a yes-man people pleaser, okay? Uh, David never sought popularity, didn't employ the kind of carnal tools that men use to gain fame. He just acted on part of God and on the part of the king. And because David was a man after God's own heart, and people could see that, it just gave him favor with the people. Initially, Saul thought, my new assistant is well received. Everyone 
thinks he's made, that I've made a brilliant choice and they're singing my praises for it. See, that's the problem. Saul always refers back to himself. How does this impact me? Me, myself, and I. Verse 7, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, first of all, let's just understand this is a truth that these women are singing. This is not a made-up, they're not saying, let's get after Saul with this. Let's make up something. No, he made David the general over the army. David would go out in battle. David had killed tens of thousands. Saul had not. And so they're just singing the truth. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And here it is. And what more can he have but the kingdom? See, Saul's not even considering what God's doing. He's looking at how it's going to impact him. What's left? If they're giving him all the praise, he's going to be the next king if I don't do something. This song became the number one hit in Israel. <laughs> and Saul couldn't even enjoy it. David became popular because of 1 Samuel 18, 14. And David had success in all his understandings, for the Lord was with him. Why couldn't Saul see that? It's not the boy. It's God. God is winning. I should be excited as a king that God's winning. But not when your heart is deceitful above all things and filled with pride and arrogance. And here Saul is comparing himself to David instead of saying, the Lord did this work. This was also a test for David, not just Saul. One that the devil wanted to use to bring David down and one that the Lord wanted to use to build David up. That's what tests always do to you. They'll either tear you down or they'll build you up. If you look back in your life at the test of life, did it build you up or tear you down? If you made the Lord the center of that test and you said, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to do what you say. I'm telling you, he'll use it to build you up. But if you take it on yourself, this is my problem. I'm navel gazing. All I can see is my problems. Woe is me. Man, it's going to eat you up. And we see that every day, don't we, with people? People go through the same problem, and one person singing the praises of God, the next person, they can't get their eyes off of their own woe. Isn't that true? It's all about perspective. Where are your eyes? Are you navel-gazing, or are you seeing the Father at work? That's what it comes down to. So... Because David could be so content and so happy before the Lord and keeping sheep with no praise or popularity, for God to bless him the way he has, it doesn't do anything except make David want to serve God more. It doesn't puff David up. He just, you know, it's interesting. We, we look at other people and we measure them and we make conclusions about them and not realize we're just reflecting what's in us. Because what you're doing is you're using your filter. And so what happens is, in order for you to feel better, I've got to put them down. But the reality is, if you say, well, that person's just all about themselves, it's probably an insight into your heart. You're all about yourself. We think we're so smart when we put people down. We're not. 
It takes no, one pastor said years ago, it takes no size to criticize. And you're revealing more about you than them. When somebody speaks negatively to you about another person, just know this. If somebody's given you some negative, a negative report on someone, listen to me. If they're doing it with you, talking to, about somebody else, don't you know that they're going to somebody else about you? It's not like you are really got it together and they think you've got it together and they're telling you everything, but then when they go to others, they just build you up. <laughs> that ain't happening. They're living through the condemnations, through the gossip, through the negative report. That makes them feel better. So it doesn't matter who they're talking to. They're going to talk about others. Don't play that game. You want to be a David. Your identity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your purpose is not selfish or selfish ambition. Your purpose is the ambition of God. What is God's desire? What is God doing? I want to join God in what He's doing. I know that I'll never be more fulfilled, more happy, more content than if I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. Amen? Nothing else. That's it. Those are the happiest people. And so Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him, and he said, they have described to David ten thousands. To me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Mm. So this thing's going full force now, man. I mean, it's really gaining steam. Now, there's also an insight as to how David handled this fame when we look at David's reaction to the criticism back in chapter 17 when he received criticism from his brother Eli. Remember he showed up on the battlefield uh, bringing food and bread and cheese and he was there just to simply carry out his father's wishes and then he heard the giant defying the God of Israel and he saw the men standing there cowering in fear running back to their tents. Saw King Saul tucked away, wouldn't come out, wouldn't fight. And David said, is there not a cause? Are you kidding me? And, and in that time, Eliab, his oldest brother, it's 1 Samuel 17, verse 28 through 30. Let me read it for you. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's speaking more about his own heart than he is his brother. And David said, What have I done? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. I love that. So his brother criticizes him. You'd think that when a brother, you know, it's interesting in family. Nobody better criticize your family member, but your family member will criticize you all day long, won't they? So his brother criticizes him. What does he do after he gets done? He turns to another group of people and says the same stuff again. David's not, he's not shaken by the criticism. Why? Because he doesn't have a dog in the fight. It's not personal to him. I'm carrying out God's wishes here. I'm here because God's allowed me to see this, and I'm just speaking up for the Lord here. That's all he was doing. So he doesn't have to cower in fear. So people will say things about us, and we, oh, oh, and, and just poor mouth, and, oh, I'm, you, 
know, it just wasn't so, it was so cruel. The, this victimization, we kick in the victim. David was never a victim. You ever notice that? And all these things that are happening and that are going to happen as King Saul tries to kill him, David never saw himself as a victim. Never. He never turned it, oh, it's just so terrible. Woe is me. What he's up to do? What am I going to do about it? I'm just sick. No, David didn't. David was on track with God. Boy, is, there, is this not hitting close to home for us tonight? How easy it is for us to get caught up in carnal ways and in flesh. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry. Well, knowing his character, we shouldn't be surprised by Saul's reaction. He didn't have a right relationship with the Lord. All he had to affirm his heart was the praise of man, so David was more praised, so therefore it really bothered Saul. That's really the bottom line. It's a bad sign in a leader when they resent or feel threatened by the success of a subordinate. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of leaders who can't handle it. What a good leader, what they should do, is actually grab the ladder, put it under the nets, and, and hold it while their employees go up and cut down the net. Celebrate the employees. That's good leadership. But see, some are so emotionally unhealthy, they can't do that. And, and that's Saul. I mean, we, we should probably use Saul's name whenever you see somebody, hey, don't Saul that thing. Don't. You're, you're acting like Saul here, you know? Um, so, so Saul's response to David's notoriety, verse 8, latter part of the verse, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And that probably, the reason that hurt Saul so much is because it reminded Saul. He was feeling guilty because he knew what Samuel said to him. It's not going to be passed down to your family. The kingdom will be taken to you. I have already chosen the next king, and he's your neighbor. And Saul just made David part of his court. <laughs> Everything that Samuel said is coming true. Saul knows it. And so now Saul, he's really he's caught in his sin. He's feeling guilty, and so he lashes out. See, an honorable man would have stepped aside and said, David... It is very clear to me that you are God's choice for king. What can I do to help you become king? i got to tell you, this was the heart of David towards the end of his life. Did you know that? In the story of David saying to God, he told Nathan, he said, hey, tell, I think it was Nathan, he said, tell the Lord that I live in a palace. This is later, so he's, David's built the kingdom up. God's been good to him. I live in a callus, and God lives in a tent. And I want to build the, the Lord a house. Now, he knows that God is a spirit, but a place of worship where God is honored. And that's what he said. And, 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 the, and the man of God said, do it. Do it. Well, later, God came to that man of God and said, who, who told you to tell him to do it? I didn't tell you that. In fact, he cannot do it because he has blood on his hands. I appreciate what he wants to do, but not David. He has blood on his hands. He, in other words, he's gone to battle and fought wars. I will let his son do it when he takes the throne, but not David. And, of course, we know Solomon's temple, right, in the Bible. So what does David do? He's an old man. The prophet comes back and says, hey, 
I'm sorry, I got it wrong. The Lord said, you can't do it because you have dirty hands. You've served him, you're faithful, you want to do something that's for the Lord, your heart's right, but the Lord said, you can't do it. Now, if he had the spirit of Saul, he'd have pouted, and he would have gone out and been angry and probably fleshed out that anger on others. Not David. When he heard that his son would build the temple that he wanted to build, what did David do? He immediately, as an old man, went into fundraising mode. And he went out and he spoke to the people and he opened up his own king's treasury and gave funds for the temple. And then he called the people to give funds for the building of the temple. Now listen now, that he would never see before his death. That's a heart after God. That's the difference. That's where the Lord wants us. He wants us to want the best, what God wants. And when that means that God raises someone up, we celebrate that. We don't measure ourselves against them. We thank the Lord for them. This is what David did. What a great model for us. Amen? Uh, so what happens? Saul, it says, has his eyes on David from that day forward. That means his mind is filled with the suspicion that David's up to something no good. Well, that's not true. And David has never given Saul any reason to think that. But when your heart's already wicked and you're, you've made it about you, then you're going to draw your own conclusions. It's interesting how we take people who are innocent of things and we turn them into devils so we can then beat them up or then we can get rid of them. That's what we do. That's what we do. And this is what Saul is doing now. So now we come to verse 10. This is where it gets interesting. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. I want to read that again for you. It's not a misprint. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. Wow. The next day, this harmful spirit was first mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. It came upon Saul, permitted by the Lord. That's what that means. God permitted. In other words, we remember God pulled, remember back when, when Saul had grieved the Lord, Samuel came to him and, and said, God's taking his spirit off of you, and he's anointing someone else. And God permitted an evil spirit to, to tempt Saul. See, God... It wasn't an evil spirit from heaven. Satan is the prince of this world, and he has plenty of evil spirits. God simply pulled back the restraint and said, you can go ahead. Just like he told Satan, you can tempt Job. I'll let you. God pulled back the restraint, and that's what he does here with Saul. Why? Why would God do that? Because God has foreknowledge, and he knows that Saul's heart is continually evil. Saul's not going to turn back towards God, and God knows that. So he says, let me just go ahead and let me, let me bend you in the direction that you're heading. I'm going to go ahead and bend you that way. This is what you want, 
let me help you in it. It's the same thing that we see in Romans 1 where Paul is very clear to say that they wanted sensuality more than they wanted God, so God what? He gave them up to sensuality. Then they wanted homosexuality more than they wanted God. He gave them up to homosexuality. God's turning over to you to a reprobate mind, Paul said, meaning that you don't any longer have the capacity to properly discern right from wrong because your heart's so bent towards evil, now everything is perversion, and you don't even think it's perversion. You think it's right. That's the only way you can look at what's happening in our world today. And these leaders, these, these people who are, not only are they speaking these things over people, but they are permitting, they want, they're encouraging it for our children to not... <laughs> Whoever would think that it's right to let a child choose in their formative years what sex they want to be? But see, those who stand by it, they're reprobate in their thinking. God is giving them over. And that's what we're talking about here with Saul. What a picture. David holds a harp to soothe the king, while the king holds a spear to harm the one soothing him. And Saul hurled, verse, verse 11, And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Understand, this distressing spirit didn't make Saul do this. Don't think for a second that the harmful spirit caused Saul to throw a spear. No, Saul chose to throw a spear. He thought in his own mind, I'll pin him. I'll literally run the spear through him and pin him to the wall with it. That was not the spirit controlling him. That's Saul choosing to do David harm. I'm just glad that David didn't pick up the spear and throw it back at Saul. Instead, he simply escaped the presence of Saul. That's a man of God right there. David had a different heart. It wasn't a matter of what he could get away with. It was a matter of God's desire. David was determined to leave the situation in God's hands and not take the throne by himself, even though he knows he's the next king. God would have to take care of Saul. God would have to put David in the throne on his timing, not David's. David would never do it. Something we might miss in the text is that David escaped Saul's presence twice. That means that Saul threw the spear twice. That means that Saul missed twice. That means that after the first miss, David came back and Saul threw another spear and David was able... Oh, well, David came back and played the harp again. Because that's what triggered Saul to throw the spear to first, the first time. David comes back in after he escapes the first time. He plays his harp again. Why? That's what the Lord had him doing in the presence of the king. I want to remember. I read a little bit from the tale of a, the tale, a tale of three kings. Gene Edwards wrote it. You got to get it. You need to have this book, A Tale of Three Kings. It's a study in brokenness. If you've come through brokenness, and I think many of us have, I know I have, this book is a must. It's not going to replace the Bible. This is simply a book that I think uh, it, it, it gives us a, a picture of Scripture. It just helps uh, explain Scripture, expound on Scripture. 
So we read the first three chapters, which are like a page and a half each. Let me read just a little further tonight, okay? Here's chapter 3. David sang to the Mad King. Often the music helped the old man a great deal, it seems. And all over the palace, when David sang, everyone stopped in the corridors, turned their ears in the direction of the king's chamber, and listened and wondered. How did such a young man come to possess such wonderful words and music? Everyone's favorite seemed to be the song that song the little lamb had taught him. They loved that song as much as did the angels. Nonetheless, the king was mad, and therefore he was jealous. Or was it the other way around? Either way, Saul felt threatened by David, as king often do when there's a popular promising young man beneath them. The king also knew, as David did, uh, as, as did David, that the, this boy just might have the job someday. But would David ascend to the throne by fair means or foul? Saul did not know. This question is one of the things that drove the king mad. David was caught in a very uncomfortable position. However, he seemed to grasp a deep understanding of the unfolding drama in which he had been caught. He seemed to understand something that few of even the wisest men of this day, of his day, understood. Something that in our day, when men are, are wiser still, even fewer understand. What is that? God did not have, but wanted very much to have, men and women who would live in pain. God wanted a broken vessel. The mad king saw David as, to threat, as a threat to the king's uh, kingdom. Saul did not understand, it seems, that, they, that God should be left to decide what kingdoms survive which threats. Not knowing this, Saul did what all mad kings do. He threw spears at David. He could. He was king. Kings can do things like that. They almost always do. Kings claim the right to throw spears. Everyone knows that kings have that right. Everyone knows very, very well. How do they know? Because the king has told them so many, many times. Is it possible that this mad king was the true king, even the Lord's anointed? And what about your king? Is he the Lord's anointed? Maybe he is. Maybe he isn't. No one can ever really know for sure. Men say they are, that's for sure. But they are not. They do not know God. They do not know. God knows, but He will not tell. If your king is truly the Lord's anointed, and if he also throws spears, then there are some things you can know and know for sure. Your king is quite mad, and he is a king after the order of King Saul. God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate. Very, 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 very few indeed. God has this school because He does not have broken men and women. Instead, He has several other types of people. He has people who claim to have God's authority and don't. People who claim to be broken and aren't. People who do have God's authority, but who are mad and unbroken. And He has regretfully a great mixture of everything in between. All of these He has in abundance, but broken men and women, hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in this school must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who meets out the pain. 
David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way to crush David. And as, kings grew, and, and, and as the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. He knew that God had placed him in the king's palace under true authority. The authority of King Saul was true. Or was true? Yes, God's chosen authority, chosen for David. Unbroken authority? Yes, but divine in ordination nonetheless. Yes, that's possible. David drew, uh, he drew in his breath, placed himself under his mad king, and moved farther down the path of his earthly hell. David had a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Does it seem odd to you that David did not know the answer to this question? After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. Why, you pick up the spear and throw it right back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it out of the wall and throw it back. Everyone else does, you can be sure. And in performing this small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. You are courageous. You stand for the right. You boldly stand against the wrong. You are tough and can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of the faith, the keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these attributes then combine to prove that you are also a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed after the order of King Saul. There is also a possibility that some 20 years after your coronation, you will be, in the most incredibly, you will be the most incredibly skilled spear thrower in all the realm. And then also, by then, quite mad. We'll stop there. There's something about that, something we're reading in our text, that the natural direction of a man is to return the spear. Throw it back. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. And that is not the way of the Lord. A true believer is able to see that actually God was using them for your purpose. I don't think that God orders up them to do that. I think it's out of their own selfish heart, it's out of their own anger, their own whatever, that they throw the spear. But the Lord won't waste the opportunity. As the counselor told Rini and I when we were seeking counsel a couple years back, after going through a great time of, of pain and brokenness, he said, suck the life out of the pain. Learn whatever God is trying to teach you through this pain. You don't have time to throw spears. You barely have enough time to learn what God's teaching. Make sure you don't waste the time. Use those times wisely. Let God grow you. And know this, that the people that you want to throw the spear back at, God loves them too. And God is going to find ways to change their hearts, to teach them brokenness. So it's not your business, it's not your place, it's not your call. You're the servant, 
He's the master. Just stay focused on being a good servant of the Lord. What time do we have? Okay. Let me go just a little bit further, then we're done. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So now we see the insight. Saul has fear. So Saul removed him from the pre his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in, look at this, fearful awe of him. He actually is revering a teenager or somebody in their early 20s, mid-20s. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Meaning, David, they knew, was simply trying to do God's work. They loved him for that. He, didn't, he wasn't concerned about the praises of man. Saul's desire was not to bless David, but to set him up for harm. Saul's jealousy had, made, uh, had, had used all types of manipulative ways to try and destroy David. Meanwhile, David continues to experience God's blessings. David seems naive here to what Saul's up to, and that's okay. When, listen, when you have your heart set on pleasing the Lord, you can be naive and get away with it. God will protect you. God will help you. Now, if you're just naive on your own and you're not doing the Lord's work, naivety will get you hurt bad. And it still might get hurt knowing what the Lord's doing, but God's going to use it for you. You won't lose with God. Amen? You don't have to play the game and get caught up in all the, the treachery and the deceit and the cunningness of man and return it. You just walk in innocence. You walk in love. You walk in simplicity before the Lord. Let God be your guard. Let God be your protector. Let God wage His own battles. You don't need to help Him. <clears throat> so this is in verse 16. For he went out and came in before them. And then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Remember back now, Saul made the decree that whoever takes out Goliath gets his daughter. <coughs> so here Saul's coming back around. He's acting like he's saying it for the first time. And he's giving it to, to, to he's, he's speaking specifically to David. David could have, if he was just being a fleshly person, could have said, Oh, I thought you did that already. You already said that once, and you didn't honor. Because I killed Goliath, and you didn't give him your daughter. So now you're going to do it again? You think I trust you this time? I mean, David could have been a smart mouth. How many of you would have been a smart mouth? Let's be honest. David held his tongue. Uh, I will give her to you for a wife. <coughs> Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let, my, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. I'm going to put him in a position where he's going to die. And it's going to look like I did the right thing. I made him a commander of thousands. 
and uh, it just happened, and I'm so sorry. Oh, I just weep, I weep. It cracks me up to watch these politicians when another politician from the opposite party dies. Oh, it just was what a wonderful man. You just got through just skinning that guy in front of the whole Congress or the whole Senate or the whole House, and now all of a sudden you're, you're like his best friend. Do they think that we're stupid? <laughs> uh, so here, Saul finally going to come around and give his daughter up to the one who can slay. Uh, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Verse 18, and David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in, in, in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now what he's really talking about here is the dowry. My dad's a peasant. I can't possibly, I mean, every young man had to provide a dowry to the father of the bride so that if something happened and he divorced her later or something happened and he died, that the dowry would be handed over from the father to the daughter. She'd be able to go forward. So David's thinking, and, and, and the way it was, the more wealthy a, a, a man was, his daughter was, you had to raise to that level of wealth to provide for her if something happened to you. So you're talking about the king. So he's more wealthy than, than anybody. David's like, my dad's a peasant. I, there's no way I can possibly build a dowry that's worthy to the king. Now, was Saul asking for that? No. Saul wants to kill him. I'm going to give you my daughter. I'm going to make you a general over thousands. Go on out there in the field and fight those battles, and I'm going to give you my daughter. He wasn't going to give his daughter up. So... But at the time when Merib, Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Another attempt of Saul to make David angry. Wait a minute, you said I would get her. Now you gave her to another man. David would have gotten upset again. No, he didn't. David, you can't, listen, when somebody has an identity in Christ, you can't, you can't offend them. You know why we get offended? I'm going to tell you why. Because we think we have rights. That's the American way. I've got rights. And somebody, they, they offended me. They, they're going against my rights. When you are a Christian, you have surrendered all rights to Jesus Christ. You are a slave on the third lower level of a trireme, trireme ship, and you're just pulling your oar faithfully for God. That's who you really are as a Christian. People who understand their identity in Christ, they don't get offended easy. I'm not saying that they're perfect. They do get offended, but not as easy. That's their first response is not to get even. That's David. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul thought, let me give her to him, and that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now that's interesting. So what he's saying, what Saul's saying is, uh, my other daughter, Michal, she loves him, but Michal's a mess. She's got character issues. And if I let her marry him, she'll really be a snare to him. That's even better. So he's not really speaking highly of his daughter here, is he? Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Really, it's a third time. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the, the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the, 
wait a minute, everybody thinks you're awesome. See, David wasn't looking at that. He doesn't see himself as having reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So if you'll go out and kill a hundred Philistines yourself, okay, bring back the foreskins, uh, then I'll give you my daughter. Again, he thought he was giving David a task that he could never fulfill, right? His desire is to kill him. Saul would have made a great politician in our day. Shouldn't surprise us that Mikhail was attracted to David, right? Because of his character, because of his accomplishments, because of his popularity. That's the kind of gal she was. I can tell you what she wasn't proud of. She never even gave a thought to the fact that David has a heart after God. And later, as we see them in the marriage relationship, we see Mikhail, who gets ticked off mad when she sees how much God, uh, David loves God. <laughs> that happens later. There's the snare. But again, David's not moved by her. He could care less because David answers to God. David has an identity in God. There's something in that, man. I'll tell you, a whole sermon could be developed on what the... Look, stop trying to find the right person to marry. Those of you who listen, if there's any young people, any single, stop trying to find the person to marry. Be the right person to marry. That's the key. Be the person God's called you to be. If you'll do that, God will take care of the rest. Instead of you trying to find somebody. These stinking websites where people go on and find somebody to marry. Are you kidding me? You know nothing about them. Good grief. Lord help people. So, and when the servants <coughs> told David these words, it pleased David <coughs> well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went along with his men, and he killed not a hundred, two hundred Philistines. So <coughs> he comes walking in with two hundred foreskins, not, not one hundred, okay, before the king. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. He had to. Okay, now, uh, there are many times in the Bible when I wish I had an illustration, a picture to draw from that Bible story. I will tell you that this story right now, David walking with 200 horses, that's not a picture I want to see. Okay, so we're just going to keep moving here. Verse 28, but when Saul saw that knew, and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Man, it just the more Saul wants to get David, the more God blesses David. <coughs> and uh, verse, look, this picture that we see of David is actually the same picture that we see of Jesus Christ. David, in a sense, is a type of Christ. It's a picture to the Old Testament uh, Jews of what Jesus, the Messiah, would be like. David is nowhere on the same page or the same place as, as Jesus, right? But he is a type. He is a type. Philippians 2.9, Paul said, Therefore God has highly exalted who? Jesus Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. 
Well, God was doing the same kind of thing to, to, to David, raising him up higher than anybody else in Israel. But why is it that the name of Jesus became so highly esteemed? Okay, I'll tell you why. Verse 8, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here it is from here, verse 7, you could actually put David in here. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This mind, this heart, that was David as well. This mind, this heart, that's Jesus. God wants this mind and this heart to be ours too. Nobody hears excuse from that responsibility to have a heart after God. Father, thank you that not only do you desire that we would have a heart after you, but you even gave us what David never had. You gave us the Holy Spirit when we were saved who lives in us and who enables us to be conformed to the image of Jesus every day that we live. And so we're thankful tonight, Lord, for this teaching from the Scripture because it's just a wonderful reminder of what it looks like to really trust God, to really walk in faith, to have our identity in Christ. So, Father, forgive us. Right now, some of us are feeling the weight of our own sinfulness. As tonight, the Scripture literally bore witness to us of the truth about us. And I pray that, Lord, we would realize that, God, you're not a God that holds it against us. You're a God that forgives us, that we are already forgiven. And now the focus is not trying to somehow make God happy again or somehow to appease the Father. Our goal is to walk in the freedom that Christ has granted us through His death on the cross. May we go out of here tonight with a desire in our heart to have a heart after you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you, church.